I'd like to invite you now to turn to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 27. Uh, I'll actually be reading the, the whole chapter in the first two verses of chapter 28. Um, this is a, a passage that Let's us know what's going on in the life of David. This is before he's King David. Uh, this is while he's David on the run. Uh, God has rejected Saul as king, and God has told David that he will be the next king. But as you may recall from your uh, understanding and awareness of the Old Testament, uh, that, that placement of David on the throne didn't happen right away, and it wasn't without a lot of trouble. And so we're going to be looking at one of the things in David's life uh, that occurred during that time. And I wanted to uh, remind you before we even get to the text that um, the Bible is very honest and real, uh, not only about the good things in God's people, but also their imperfections and their flaws. And what we're going to be reading about this morning is one of David's failures. When he failed to trust God, he failed to obey God. Uh, I'm thankful that God does not only present to us the times when his people are faithful, but we see real people with real problems and real struggles, and there are things for us to learn from that. Um, I want to remind you, too, that when we read of particular incidents in the Bible, uh, my, my wife has often encouraged me, we, we need to look at a snapshot or we don't need to look at a snapshot. That's what we tend to do in our own life and sometimes in the Bible too. We forget about the video, the bigger story and the whole story. So keep that in mind as we read about David. It would be wrong for us to judge him merely based on this passage and what we find here. Um, but we also have to not shy away from the things that we see that are wrong. And we need to pray and ask God that he would teach us not only about David, but about our hearts, about our lives, about what we do, about what we believe. Uh, a little bit more before I read the text. Um, the context is that David has been on the run from Saul for a long time. He's been in the wilderness for the majority of that time. There have been two recent occasions when, as Saul was pursuing David, uh, David had the opportunity to kill him. He was tempted to do that. In fact, he was encouraged to do that by some of his men. But both times, God brought conviction to his heart, and he said, no, I'm not going to put my hand out against God's anointed. I won't do it. Now, both of those times, uh, as David... Um, um, exposed himself to Saul, and Saul realized that he could have been killed by David. Uh, Saul um, admitted that he was wrong. He even one time, I think both times, actually said, David, you're more righteous than I am. But he kept pursuing David. It didn't change his behavior at all. David's been patient time and time again. He's also experienced betrayal from a lot of people people that were close to him, people that he trusted. I think it was especially hurtful back in chapter 23 when he and his men had rescued the residents of Keilah. And then they shared his location with Saul so that Saul could come and kill him. Over and over again, 
David has experienced betrayal. You might remember the time that he made a request of Nabal, a very wealthy man, to share with him and his men in their time of celebrating and harvesting. And, and Nabal not only re refused to do that, he also ridiculed David. Over and over again, he's been experiencing difficulties. And yet David, over and over again, has trusted God's faithfulness. And so as we come to this chapter, we might be anticipating, okay, we're, we're, as you're reading, I'm going to read another example of David's faithfulness. But that's not what we read. Instead, we find a strong, righteous, and faithful man who has become weary through suffering. And he's beginning to rely on his own thoughts and interpretations of his circumstances instead of relying on the promises of God. It's a dark time for David. And the intensity of that darkness that David experienced, I think is going to be highlighted even as I begin to read the first couple of verses. So be listening for that. If you would stand together with me and let's pray before I read the scripture. Father, we bow before you and we ask for your help. We are so thankful that your word is so plain and clear. And yet we confess we, we don't fully get it if you don't work in our hearts by your spirit. So would you help us today, Father, to understand, to understand about your servant, David, but also, and, and even more importantly, help us to understand about our own hearts, our own struggles. Help us more and more to trust you entirely and completely. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We read in God's word, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 27, uh, the first verse. Then David said in his heart, Now... I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maoch, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath. He and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoham of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Gersherites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur, to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negeb of Judah, or against the Negeb of the Jeharimalites, or against the Negeb of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, 
lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. It's a sobering way to end the reading, isn't it? Uh, David is about to join Achish and attack the very people over whom God said, you will be king. Um, how did he get to this point? Uh, well, if we didn't have verse 1 of chapter 27 in our text, we might be inclined to interpret this whole chapter and everything going on here as simply an example of good military strategy on the part of David, right? How clever is it to hide from someone who is trying to kill you by going into the territory of their enemy? It's not likely that Saul's going to chase David or into the land of the Philistines. But we cannot interpret the story in that way. It's not good military strategy. And we know that because we have verse 1. We have this explanation followed by the consequences of David's actions. And it leads to that awful dilemma at the end of what I read. David, are you really going to join the Philistines and attack God's people? By starting the story with being honest and realistic about what's going on in David's heart, the author here is emphasizing to us the importance of guarding our hearts. I think you all probably already know this, but let me remind you, just in case you don't, or in case you haven't thought about it recently, in the Bible, the heart is not just the organ in your body that pumps blood. <laughs> it's the command center. It's your thinking. It's your feeling, uh, your emotions, your will, everything about the real you, the part of you that, that's, that's going on inside of you, that inner person, that combination of all you think and feel and desire, that's your heart. And the Bible tells us very clearly that's the source for all your words, everything that comes out of your mouth, where did Jesus say it comes from? The heart. What about your actions? Where do your actions come from? Jesus says it comes from your heart. This is the place where our biggest battles are fought. Will I obey or will I not obey? Will I fear man or will I fear God? It doesn't start with the words in my mouth or the, my actions. It starts with my heart. What am I thinking? What am I feeling? What am I desiring? On this occasion, for David, 
Fearing man outweighs fearing God. That's why he fails in his leadership. But in spite of that, God is working. In spite of David's failures, God will still bless. In spite of David's failures, there's still hope. And so I want to look for those things with you this morning. Um, but we'll have to work through some hard things first. So the first thing I want to consider with you is the exposure of weariness that leads to failure. And again, uh, that, that's right here in verse 1. It's a little bit unusual in the scripture. We don't always get to see what somebody is thinking. There are many narratives, and it's usual in narratives that we just see what people did. But here, the author tells us why. He tells us about the struggle in David's heart. It was despair. Despair in David's heart led to his decision. And that might lead you to ask the question, why is David despairing? Hasn't he just been spared from Saul once again? Well, yes, he has, but he's weary because it keeps happening. He's weary because he has 600 men under his care. And now it's not just the men who are warriors and fighters that are with him. They all have their households too, their wives, their children. There are all these people for whom David is responsible. And by the way, God's preparing David for leadership over people, not just armies. Isn't that what a king has to do? He has to be able to rule his army, but he also has to be able to take care of all the people that are his subjects. Right now, David must be weary of that. That increasing responsibility brings increasing cares. He's been on the run for a long time. He's physically tired. He's emotionally worn out. Remember, time and time again, those who are close to him have betrayed him. He's been told by Saul, I'm not going to view you as an enemy anymore. And yet he does. He continues to pursue him. He continues to try to kill him. I think one of the most significant things is found uh, in chapter 26, a little bit before where I read. You may want to take a glance at that in verses 17 through 20 of Chapter 26, it's the most recent time when David had the opportunity to kill Saul and he didn't. And then he lets Saul know that he's there and that he could have killed him. And part of what David says to Saul is recorded for us here. Uh, Saul recognizes David's voice and he asks, is it you, David? And David said, it is my voice, my Lord, O king. Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. David was not despairing only because he didn't get to be king yet. He wasn't despairing only because Saul was after him. He wasn't despairing only because people had betrayed him. He felt like he was cast out from the presence of God and the people of God. And that was what his heart most longed for, to be with God and to be with God's people. 
And he had been cast out now for a long, long time on the run, increasing responsibilities, increasing cares. Perhaps David's thoughts were similar to what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? David was longing for God. And he wasn't longing like we do. Maybe if you had opportunity sometime yesterday, you're relaxed in your den, and maybe the thought occurred to you, I just I can't wait to go to church tomorrow. I get to go see my brothers and sisters in Christ. I get to worship. I get to hear God's word read. I get to sing hymns of praise. It's just a wonderful thing to be able to go to church. I love doing that. That's very different if you're sitting in your recliner or out on your porch and everything is going well. It's very different from those times when you've maybe just gotten the diagnosis of cancer. Or maybe you've been experiencing physical pain and suffering for a long time and there is no end in sight. The doctors aren't sure how to help you. Maybe there's a relationship it's been broken by sin and you've tried and tried and tried to restore it, but you can't. Maybe you've been asking for a godly spouse for a long time. And you don't have one. Maybe you've been asking for a child for a long time and your arms are still empty. You're longing for things when combined with suffering brings an intensity to that suffering and it makes you feel desperate, or it can. A desperation that is born out of long waiting and increasing responsibilities, that's what David is feeling. And maybe you have felt that too. Maybe you can be understanding. It seems to him, it's never going to get better. And so with the, the, the question that might come to our mind, if we're just reading through the text, the whole narrative of everything that David experienced, if we ask the question, will David continue to trust God's promises? Here at this point, we would have to say no. He's not trusting God. In fact, the thoughts of his heart don't even include any reference to what God has promised. They don't even include any reference to God, do they? Did you notice that as I read verse one? No reference to God, no reference to his promises. David is acting as if God has been silent. It's a big red flag as we read that in our text. It's a very significant and severe reversal from David's previous understandings and his convictions. Prior to this, Whenever David was faced with overwhelming opposition, David was quick to confess his faith in the God who delivered him from the, the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. Remember? Facing Goliath? When the, the entire Israelite army was scared to death? He was bold there. What was he depending on? God's promise. How often 
did he declare that his trust was in God? And how often did others encourage him to trust and hope in God? And yet here, you just can't. He's suffered, he's desperate, and he's not looking to God. Another earlier occasion in David's life, one of the times they had the opportunity to kill Saul, his, uh, one of his top generals, Abishai, said, kill him. And David said, no, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. David uses that very same word perish in this verse, but this time, instead of it referring to what God will do to Saul, David uses it to refer to what he fears Saul will do to him. Again, it's very important to notice there's no mention of God. It's a big red flag for David. It's a big red flag for you and me too. Have you ever experienced suffering like that or waiting like that where you begin to look at the situation and God is not in your thoughts. We would like to all be able to say, well, no, never. I've never done that. But the truth is, sometimes we forget about God. We can doubt God. Other great servants of God have done so. Job, even John the Baptist. Jesus, are, are you really the one we're, we're waiting for, or should we be looking for somebody else? There are times throughout the scripture when we see God's people experience difficulty and doubt. Here's the key thing. Do they run to God or do they run away from God? And sometimes the way we run away from God is by just not thinking about him at all. That's sin. Failing to believe God's promises is offensive to him. It puts us in dangerous places. So let me plead with you, and we'll talk more about applications later. Let me plead with you when you're experiencing doubt and weariness, and it seems that things will never change. Please, please run to God. Don't run away from him. Don't be like David and not have God in your thoughts. Whenever we look at our circumstances and we forget about God's intervention, God's power, whenever we trust in our own cleverness, or our own abilities, we always get in a very bad place, don't we? A dark place. A place like where David is. A place where our thoughts might be screaming, God doesn't care, or God doesn't help, won't help me, or you're on your own for this. Or maybe even sometimes your thought is, well, I've just failed God too much, so I need to get my act together first. Then I'll cry out to God for help. No, in all of those instances, I would plead with you, run to God. Now, I know I've taken a long time on just one verse. I won't keep that same speed all the way through. But um, this is important because this brings the life of David very much into connection with our lives and our experience. So don't miss it. The second thing, though, that we see here in the text is the consequences of David's decision. David has decided he's going to go over to the Philistines. 
He's going to try to get in good with King Achish. So what does he do? He just boldly walks in there, goes to the enemy of his enemy, and he says, hey, we'd like to live here. Achish says, okay. He receives David and his men and their households. And the Bible tells us, Saul hears that he is in Gath, and they no longer sought him. So just from a human perspective, it may sound like, hey, things are pretty good, right? Saul is not chasing him anymore. He's safe in the land of the Philistines. Well, apparently David proves he's no threat to Achish and the Philistines. So he makes a request of the king. Listen, king, there are too many of us to keep being your guests here in the royal city, you know, where you live. Could we have one of the cities out in the country? Could we have just a little town out in the country somewhere so that we're not so much trouble for you? It's a pretty bold request, isn't it? But it also kind of sounds like I no longer view myself as a guest. I want to be a resident here. I'm, I'm going to stop renting. I'm going to buy. This is where we're going to put down roots. Me and my men and all of our families. And so God works in Achish for Achish to give to me what sounds like an, an incredible gift to David. He gives him Ziklag. Yeah, here's a town. Out in the country, you and all your army, all your families, yeah, you can have this town. It's interesting, the narrator in the scripture tells us here that that city, Ziklag, still belongs to the kings of Judah. So even when this history was written, it still was belonging to the kings of Judah. And it's also interesting to note that back in Joshua 15, Ziklag was one of the cities given to the tribe of Judah, but they hadn't possessed it for a long time. Philistines had been there. So God was actually showing kindness to David, even in the midst of David's deception. And it seems crazy that Achish would do this. Apparently, David's pretty good at deceiving. And that deceiving came out of failing to trust God. Think about it. What king in his right mind would welcome the warrior who defeated his champion, Goliath? And yet Achish does. David's deception seems to be working. His men and their families, they settle into Ziklag and they start to conduct raids. Now, perhaps as I was reading it, it was difficult to follow along. I, I, th I think it's, it's fairly clear what David's doing. He and his men are going out to... Areas where there are Philistines or people sympathetic to the Philistines and they're making these raids. And when he, he doesn't leave anybody alive to tell the story, when he comes back, he brings all the plunder. He gives it to King Achish. And King Achish says, where'd you get it? And so I've been over in the territory of the Israelites, the Negev of Jeruam, and those other names that are hard to pronounce. Um, and Achish believes him. He's successful in his deception. Achish is more and more convinced that David is now the enemy of Israel. Don't miss that. David's not just trying to say, stay out of trouble. He's trying to gain the favor of the enemy of God's people. Is there a pattern here? More and more deception by David, which requires more and more deception. And he seems to be successful, but the consequences of his actions are about to bring him to an impossible decision. 
an agonizing dilemma. Before we look more closely at that, we need to pause a little bit and make application to our hearts too and our words. One of the ways that you can discern if you're failing to trust God is if you feel that you can or you must lie. I don't remember where I read this. I don't think I came up with it. But someone once said that before you can tell a lie, you have to believe a lie. I think they're absolutely right. And the lie is this. I'm in control and I must take care of myself no matter what. That's the lie that we believe before we lie. If we believe God is absolutely in control and he will take care of me, there's no reason ever to lie, is there? No reason at all. But if we think we're in control, if we think God might not take care of us, then we're very tempted to lie. And it's lying is more than just the big whoppers, right? It's when you hold back certain inf information that might be incriminating to you. It's when we evade answering a direct question, when we put ourselves in a more positive life light than what is true. All of these are ways of lying. God defines it this way, bearing false witness. Anything and everything that doesn't line up with the truth. Recently, um, my brothers and I, we were helping my mother get ready to move, and we needed to sell her house so she could move into a retirement community. Uh, her house needs a lot of work. Um, we, we did a few things on it, got it listed with a realtor, and when I looked at the pictures online, I thought, wow, what a house. I'd like to buy that one. I think it's called t uh, en Enhancing. That's it. They don't say touching up. They don't say editing. They don't say correcting. They don't say I'm making it look better than it really is. It's just enhancing pictures so you can see what the house could look like. Um, realtors, I, I take it that's pretty common practice now in, in putting listings online. What do you do then when the, the first family comes for the showing and they say, wait a minute, this doesn't look like the pictures. Maybe you've run into that recently if you've had to look for a house. A few years ago, we were looking and ran into that. False witness. Not being truthful. We see it here in David and he's really good at it. He deceives Achish over and over again. What about us? Is there anything that we are saying or portraying that really isn't true. This goes all the way back to the garden, doesn't it? With Adam and Eve, Satan asked her, did God really say, which caused her to doubt, which was followed by deception because she lied about what God said and she felt okay and justified in her lying, which confirmed in her heart that God was not being truthful to her, which meant she didn't need to trust, which meant she could go ahead and disobey what God had clearly said, deception always gets worse. Adam went right along with her, didn't he? You see, when you don't believe God, then you're vulnerable to believing lies and to telling them and to acting on them. And if God doesn't exist or God doesn't care, then you really have no choice but to look out for yourself after all, right? And then when you tell one lie and you start to get in a little bit of trouble, then you have to tell another one. On and on it goes. 
Dear friends, one of the best ways that we can pursue to guard our heart is to constantly affirm the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of God. It's a non-negotiable. You cannot compromise in the least little bit. Believing what is true about God leads to more truth and more understanding of truth. But you can't get there if you don't begin with absolute belief in the truthfulness and trustworthiness of God. Don't forget the arena for the battle is your heart. That's where the doubts come. And they have to be confronted with the truth. I mentioned Psalm 42 a few moments ago. Further down in the psalm, the psalmist talks to himself and says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. Oh, when you begin to doubt, when you begin to fear, when you're tempted to not be absolutely 100% truthful, trust in God. Talk to yourself. Remind yourself. So we've found so far in our text, the reason for David's actions is a failure to trust God. It's in the context of suffering, in the context of waiting. It was hard. Don't make light of it. But the consequences of failing to trust were lying and deception, and they lead to this impossible decision in chapter 28, the first two verses. And the question that just pierces my heart is, was David actually thinking I'm going to go fight against God's people. It sure sounds like it, doesn't it? The decision is presented to David there in these verses when Achish has called his people together to fight against Israel. What's he going to do with David? Well, he's going to take him along. After all, David and his men have made themselves an utter stench to Israel, is what Achish thinks. So why not have David and his men join them? These are great warriors. They're very successful. And so when Achish tells David his answer, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish saying, very well, you'll be my servant for life. My bodyguard. Achish was completely deceived. David was very convincing. What in the world was David going to do? Well, the scripture kind of leaves us hanging here because the next verse, verse 3, goes on to what's happening with Saul. But we'll get back to what happens in just a moment. For right now, just simply notice this, the wrongness of David's thinking. Weariness and a failure to trust has resulted in lying and deception. Now it appears he's ready to betray his people, betray God. His seeming success at lying has come at a terrible, almost unthinkable cost. How can the man who would be king, whose calling is to protect his people, go to war against them? This is not beyond comprehension, though, is it? Have you heard of people who are experiencing difficulty in their life, professing believers? who will begin to lie, begin to compromise, begin to deceive. And before you know it, a husband who seemed to be faithful and loving and care about his family is destroying them 
It's not really any different from what's taking place here. It's a smaller scale, but it's just as devastating. You start down the path of lying because you don't trust God and there's no telling where you end up. We see that so clearly here with David. And yet in spite of that, there's hope. There's hope. I've tried to point out just a few little glimmers of that as we've gone through the text, but we find it a little bit better if we start to zoom out from the particular scene we're looking at. If we zoom out, first of all, to chapter 29, that's farther along. That's on the other side of the narrator telling us what's going on with Saul. We notice God protecting David. It's not because David gets convicted and goes to the king and says, hey, I was lying, you know, don't, don't let me do this. No, he's ready to go. The time has come when the soldiers are ready to march, head towards Israel. And the other commanders notice that with King Achish, is David and his men. And the commanders say, king, what are you doing? Don't you know who that guy is? Don't you remember what he's done? There is no way that he's going to go along with us and fight against Israel. This would give him the perfect opportunity to turn on us and win the throne of Israel. He is absolutely not going to come. And so God wonderfully delivered David from the horrible thing that was about to happen. That was God's mercy, purely God's mercy. Did David deserve that? No. Did God's people deserve that? No. It's just because of God's faithfulness. Not only that, but if you spread out enough to see chapter 29, you also have read the rest of chapter 28 and you see that in Saul's life, God is continuing to work and that Saul is in the process of finally and totally being swept away. He's going to perish. The promise that God had made to David that David was failing to remember, God still keeps his promise. And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that the scripture tells us If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Aren't you glad that God is good to his people, even when they don't deserve it? But as we back away even more and think about all of Scripture, what do we find? There never was a man or a people who could fully please and obey and serve God. We'll find out later from David. He started out as a pretty great king. He did a lot of not very good things while he was king. Solomon starts out good. God tells Solomon, I'll give you anything you ask me for. What do you want? Solomon pours out his heart and says, give me wisdom. God says, I'm so glad that that is what you asked for. I'm going to give you wisdom, more wisdom than anyone has ever had. And you could have asked for riches. You didn't, but I'm going to give them to you anyway. How does Solomon end up? His heart is turned away to worship other gods by the many wives that he married. Over and over again, there's failure after failure throughout all of Scripture. And the reason is because no human being ever could serve God faithfully and fully and without failure. But the day came. The day came when God sent his own son. And he faithfully obeyed and served his father, 
no matter what. And you and I cannot fully comprehend the suffering he went through. We read about a lot of it in the scripture, but there is more. Can you imagine what, it, even for one moment, what it would be like for the creator of this world to enter into his creation and be limited by it? How is it that the Son of God could experience hunger and thirst and betrayal? He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's able to squash any opposition without a second thought. And speaking of thoughts, he knows the thoughts of everybody, not just their actions, not just their words. He knows. And yet he submitted himself to suffering. Nowhere is it more clear than as the time of going to the cross was approaching, as Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if there's any way for this to be removed from me. He knew he was going to experience true forsaking. David thought God had forsaken him. God hadn't. Jesus would experience forsaking. When our sins were placed on him, his father had to turn his back. But in that moment, as Jesus cried out, what did he say? Not my will, but yours. So he trusted God, no matter how deep the suffering, no matter how deep the agony, knowing that it was God's will for him to suffer and that only through the suffering we could be saved. Jesus said, not my will, not my will, yours be done. He endured suffering to the bitter end because he trusted in God, the very thing that God commands us to do. And Jesus, as a man, did it. He fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law. Every single one did not fail in any way. So much so that even his enemies, while he was hanging on the cross, one of their taunts was, he trusted in God. Let him deliver him, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. It looked like defeat, but it wasn't, was it? As the Lord Jesus entrusted himself to his faithful God and Father, what looked like the, the greatest possible defeat was in reality the greatest possible victory with the greatest benefit for the greatest number of people. Jesus saved his people. He did that because he trusted his Father. And he did not turn away. Three things I would like to uh, encourage you to remember uh, as you think about this text. First one is, remember, the battle takes place first in your heart. Please don't forget that. Don't try to grow as a Christian simply by controlling things on the outside. It won't work. You'll either realize you're a total failure or you'll succeed at some things and you'll become prideful. But your heart will be far from God. The battle takes place in your heart. This is why Proverbs tells us, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Think about how appropriate this is for David. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Your mouth's not going to go where your heart hasn't gone first. Guard your heart with all vigilance. Secondly, actively pursue 
and practice a radical trust in God. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Talk to yourself. Remind yourself. Rebuke yourself. Keep pursuing from your heart a radical trust in God that will keep you from despair. It doesn't mean it will keep you from difficulty. It doesn't mean it will keep you from suffering. But in your suffering, you will know to whom you must turn. And then thirdly, the last application is simply this. When you fail to trust, remember the one who never failed, who not only paid the price for your failure, but also provided his perfect record to cover you. So go quickly to Jesus. As soon as you see the slightest deviation from trust, as soon as you see the slightest deviation from truth, don't run away. Run to Jesus over and over and over again. Hope in God. You will yet praise him. This is the promise of Scripture. It's for God's people. It is for you. Keep running to Jesus. And tonight as you celebrate the Lord's Supper, you'll have the opportunity to be reminded of that all over again. He really did pay for every one of your sins. You are reconciled with a holy God if you are trusting in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you. We ask that you would help us, that you would make these truths a reality in our hearts. Father, please help us not to forget. Help us not to um, fail to recognize where the battle is raging in our hearts. And please, Father, increase in us the fear of you, the trust of you, the reliance upon you. Increase that in us, please. Help us to pursue it with all of our hearts, with radical truth, with rebuking ourselves, and with reminding and encouraging one another. Oh, Father, please help us to trust you. And when we don't, Father, please help us to see that Jesus is the one to whom we must run, not to ourselves, not to our own cleverness, not to, um, not to anyone or anything other than Jesus. Father, please, please help us that we would cling to him, and Father, as we do, would you show yourself faithful again and again. We ask all these things in the name of your dear Son, our Savior, our King, our Lord, our Redeemer, our friend, Jesus. Amen. Our hymn of response this morning is uh, number 350. Let's stand together.